Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Dennis Schuler. I'm your moderator of Vendapunkt, Inflection Points for Senior Leaders. And I'm gonna be joined shortly by two brothers, Leon Zakaria and Ike Zakaria, who are running a fashion retailer for young women um, out in Los Angeles. Uh, they inherited this business from their dad when I think it was like 25 stores uh, 27 years ago. They've been running it in tandem since. And uh, they've grown it to over 200 stores and it's one of the most successful companies in the space. Now, as you might imagine in retail, this company was crushed during the last uh, year in terms of business results. All of their stores typically are in malls and with states closing their businesses and malls closing, their business dried up almost overnight. I saw the two of them in Los Angeles last February and they were coming off a record year and a record start to 2020. And within a month, they were closing almost all of their business and their revenue dropped almost 90%. Uh, but that's not the real story I wanna capture today. It's, it's the story of brotherly love at one end of it. It's the other end of it is how you build resilience into an organization when it's going through the depths of an unprecedented crisis that we've all experienced. And the lessons they've taken away and the lessons I hope you'll take away about how you can be a much more progressive, thoughtful leader as you help navigate your organizations through the stormy waters of COVID and beyond. So with that as a way of introduction, uh, let me just tell you that Leon, who's the CEO of the business was born and raised in Los Angeles, went to Georgetown School of Foreign Service and the Anderson School where he got his EMBA in 1997. He had his early involvement in real estate development um, and he's handled all of the functions that you would, you would expect on his way up to become the CEO. His brother Ike is the merchandising manager. He's got an eye for fashion. He's a, actually a lawyer, uh, graduated from Cardozo School of Law, obviously born and raised in Los Angeles as well, given he's a family member. Um, but his experience at Windsor includes all the aspects of, of buying, uh, selling, and, and uh, you know trend and design. And he's he now occupies the chief merchandising officer role. So I think it'll be a rich, real treat for you today to listen and learn from two brothers that are bonded at the hip, running a great business, and have developed an exceptionally strong culture that helps them weather the storm of COVID, but also helps them forth a proposition to consumers, which is delightful. You hear them talk about the Oasis. Uh, typically their stores are an Oasis within a mall and the malls can be pretty dispiriting. Their, their business has to be the shiny star and the anchor point in malls. But they also talk about the Oasis as an Oasis of a place where you can be yourself as an employee. And they talk about inverting the pyramid. And I've witnessed and I've watched them do this and they really mean what they say. So um, join me for a, a rollicking tour of retail with two of the best people I know on earth, Leon and Ike Zakaria. I think you guys got great stories to tell. And so I was really happy when you accepted the invite because I know you're busy as hell and Ike's hanging out in Beverly Hills all the time, you know, grooving, but I'm glad you guys made it anyway. Uh, we're, we're, we're grateful you asked us. Thank you. Oh, I was going to start with, um, if I could, um, you know, you're both, you both are in fashion retail for quite some time, but I want to drift back in time and talk about the early forces 
that shaped your thinking about what you do today? I know you grew up in a family of retailers and you're close to your parents and obviously your dad, mom uh, started the business that you guys are entrusted with now. But I was curious around the forces that shaped you. It could be people, stories, events, uh, things that happened to you that got you interested in and confirmed that, yeah, this was the career path I wanna take. So could you tell us a little bit about that? Well, this was fun. This is the first time I've well, done a three-way, so you guys will have to okay. play off each other as brothers. Right. Okay, sounds first. good. Sounds good. Well, um, you know, we're we're brothers, obviously, so our stories are going to overlap quite a bit, um, and it's actually kind of a strategy of how we run the business. But um, we, you know, we were both born into this business, sort of. You know, from, and this is all our parents talked about at the dinner table. Um, my father was not one to have boundaries um, in terms of business and family and everything was blended together. Uh, he was a serial entrepreneur, a workaholic. Um, we were exposed to his antics, his ups and downs. And, um, and if you would have told me early on in my life, you know, especially as I was in school and, you know, doing things, finding different interests that I was going to be in the dress business, that would not have, you know, it wasn't something I wanted to be, right, as a kid, you know, that to, to sell dresses or, you know, that, that but it, it ended up being, you know, sort of it's in a way kind of a family obligation, but also an opportunity that we saw. Um, so it wasn't something we necessarily dreamed of doing. I'm not sure if I'm speaking for Ike, but I imagine I am. <laughs> Um, yeah. but, but we kind of, we kind of slowly, little by little got, got into it. And, um, and then all of a sudden you're in, and then all of a sudden fast forward 30, 40 years later, and here we are. So just, just kind of have life happens sometimes. It's not, and it sort of goes with, I think in life in general, that I, I don't think, um, people think like you have to find your passion. Hmm. I think you make your passion. And I think that's true in work. It's true in relationships and finding a spouse, you know, that there, there is nothing, no perfect situation that matches you exactly. Um, and if you're looking for that, I think you'll, you may be disappointed. Um, but that's sort of how, on my end, how I fell into it. Or I, to, to, no, to that point, and I totally agree, Leon, you know, um, it, it, it wasn't exactly something we chose. Leon mentioned obligation, some opportunity. Um, what's interesting is that when when Leon and I really got involved, um, you know, my parents were kind of at the tail end of a successful run, but really for a handful of years, they were really struggling. So when we got involved, they were actually even, you know, meeting with bankruptcy attorneys and stuff. Yep. And, and so we knew that number one, they needed help. And number two, you know, it could just be a short window of help because the business may not be around. And we had like, you know, very little time to kind of stabilize, uh, stabilize the, the, the ship. And um, so uh, at the end of the day, you know, we were able to turn it around, but we did tread water for 15 years in the process. I mean, it, it was not easy. And, and I think the big takeaway from me when I compare it to today's generation is that most people wouldn't tolerate 
15 years of basically treading water, right? Today, people want, you know, more immediate gratification, you know, what's in it for me in the, in the, you know, one year, two year, three year. Um, but, you know, we, we had hoped that it could really lead to something one day. Um, we, we worked, um, you know, I, I think you mentioned passion, we worked passionately. Um, and, and I guess not taking eye, our eye off the ball was, was really key for us because there were a lot of distractions. There were a lot of other ways we could have gone. Um, but, but we stuck with it, you know, Leon, to Leon's point, Leon studied um, international studies and relations at Georgetown and I went to law school. So um, dresses was not at the top of our list. You know, um, I thought I thought my vision that you guys would have some bolts of fabric in your childhood bedrooms. You'd be cutting out different uh, designs, yeah. of course, nothing like that. Huh? No, nothing remotely. I, I did read, uh, which I didn't realize. I had my uh, cracked uh, crack researcher, my son, do a little research. I didn't realize how close you guys were back. This is a two thousand article in the Wall Street. How close your dad was around skirting potential bankruptcy. That there was some lean years. This goes, goes back to I think 2000, um, where your dad had been in the business for uh, 41 years in 25 shops. Uh, that must that must have left an impression on you guys as early as it was. Yeah, I, I think that was our foundation. Actually, you know, like having having struggled, having seen hard times, um, it changed the way we we view things. Um, and, you know, we're, we became survivors, which, you know, and there's a great value to surviving. Um, and I think what we figured out is that if you're able to survive, um, you'll get to a point where others have not survived or where there's a, you know, like a great recession or now a pandemic. Um, and then there's a lot of opportunity that comes after those periods. Um, so I, I think that's one of the things that we did learn from that. Um, I think, yeah. you know, it's actually in our value statement. It's, you know, it's, it's doing more with less, right? We, we had to be creative. We had to be scrappy. It wasn't an option. Um, but that out at the same time, I think that gave us a competitive edge um, when it came to work ethic and really having to like, rely on relationships and good people and culture to get through um, as opposed to just kind of throwing money at a problem. So um, we didn't have that option, so. You know, I want to explore that a little bit. We're gonna to get to the culture because you guys got a unique culture at Windsor, but I wanted to ask you, again, you guys are leaving, living, breathing embodiments of growing up in a family that had a business. What were the unique aspects of working in that kind of setting? where work life kind of blended together. Your dad from all accounts was a really hard working guy that I think he was 24 seven. I read the article, he'd make the rounds of calls uh, every night at nine o'clock. Um, so it, it permeated every aspect of your life. What were the stresses and strains and the positive negatives of uh, growing up in a founder led family? Well, you know, so both, both my father and mother were, were were involved in building and founding the business. My mother got involved later, uh, about the time that uh, Ike was born. And um, 
and we we learned a lot from both of them, right? So it was a so like we said, there was no boundaries. Um, you know, um, my dad had a crazy passion for the business. Uh, it it was a little bit erratic uh, and hard to be around. Um, classic entrepreneur, um, very up and down. Very, I mean, he worked himself to where he got. You know, it wasn't um, there weren't a ton of systems, um, but he did it because he was willing to work all hours to get it done. Um, and, you know, so, you know, from, we learned different things from each of our parents. From my mother, it was sort of the calm perseverance. She didn't get rattled easily. Um, she was a steady Eddie um, and she, she was just kind of focused and very supportive of everybody but incredibly important and integral to the company. And my father was kind of the seat of the pants, gut feeling, um, very risk oriented, um, love taking risks to the point where he, when he was 65, 70 years old, even beyond, he wanted to bet it all, you know, on different opportunities. And we were the ones who we were much younger saying, whoa, hold, hold back dad, let's, you know, I mean, that's how he was. I mean, I think in one word, um, if one word were to sum it up, it would be anxiety because, you know, it, it was the good times were good, the bad times were bad, and we were all in the same lifeboat, you know, and, and you know, to Leon's point at 65, 70, my dad mortgages the house to the hilt, right, mortgages every property that he has to keep the business alive another six months. And, and we're all there with him, right? And, and none of us are diversified. And I'm sleeping on a couch in law school because I can't afford an apartment. And um, so, um, you know, we were all in it together, which was, you know, to, you know and, and that's where Leon talks about survival. And, and so it, it really was challenging because um, that's all you knew. And you both mentioned, uh and you mentioned the anxiety, um, you, met the, you mentioned the ups and downs, um, Leon. What, how does that uh, shape how you lead your organizations today? Because we all take lessons from our experiences about what, yeah. to do and what not to do. What are, what are the lessons that you took away from that experience? You know, I think what we learned from um, our role models and our parents was uh, how how to be a human being. Um, and what I mean by that, in, in Yiddish, actually the word for human is mensch, um, which you may have heard. And, and it's actually a great compliment in, in the Yiddish culture. It, it, it means you're a human, right? And we were around people that were first and foremost were humans and they treated other people with respect like humans. And the the loyalty that comes from that type of connection is very intense. And it's why people have been with us. It's not uncommon to, you know, people have been with us for over 20 years, even over 30 years. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, it's, it's, it's what is the family culture. There's a, a great value in that. And we really believe um, that that's how that's the best way to run the business. It's the way that feels good. Uh, and it's what's worked because in the end, 
you know, when you the business grows larger and larger, it's not us that runs the business, it's the culture that runs the business. So any investment in time in the culture is, is going to save us a tremendous amount of time and we wouldn't be able to do it otherwise. Um, it's, really the, it's really the secret sauce for us. Yeah, Ike, what about you? Your question exactly is... Uh... Your, your lessons you take away from your experiences and how, you, how that manifests how you, how you lead today and what you tried to, try to uh, kind of extol in the order you know, today. I think, I think one of the things um, we've come to understand over time, and we say this over and over again, is that things are never uh, as bad as they seem, and they're also never as good as they seem. And, and with that, we, um, we know that if we're on an upward trend, it, it probably means you need to work hard. <laughs> and, and and stay focused and um and keep everybody energized um during the good times and the bad times but especially during the good times like you really we've learned that it, you can't really sit back and that you don't want to sit back um and so um i think that's that's the big yeah. takeaway for us is that you know i think the other thing that we may have learned and i and sorry to interrupt but i i think that both of us, we watched our parents go, you know, ride the roller coaster of retail. And retail is a roller coaster. It's like you get, you have, you're only as good as you were yesterday, right? And you feel that. Um, and it's really very hard to separate yourself from the numbers because it's a business of numbers. You, you, can, you can check the, the business, the numbers every hour if you wanted to and drive yourself crazy. And, and to Ike's point, it's like, it's never as good. It's, it's never all that good or all that bad. It's like, you have to keep the perspective. Uh, and that's taken us a long time to figure out. And we're still working on that. And, and we've actually, you know, we have found it, Leon and I, you know, we, after my dad passed away about 10 years ago, we continued to call the stores, right? And at that time there was 60, 70 stores. And, and we said, hey, we need to pick up that role. And, and um, and while that's great, emotionally it was very very taxing on us. Um, and so we consciously have made a decision to step away from the day to day numbers. I mean, we look at them every day, but we didn't need to have them in real time yeah. because obviously it was just affecting our moods and our ability to actually step back and perform and 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 and, and inspire others. Just couldn't do it in that environment. So. so tell me, tell me a little bit about uh, culture. One of the things I notice about both you guys, and I think one of the reasons why, um, you know, if I can speak for Sun just for a minute, we love working with you guys because you're both value driven leaders. I mean, that's very evident. Like, you know, it takes like a few seconds to figure that out. But how do you how do you take um, the sense of values? And, and you mentioned now you got well over a couple hundred stores. How do you inculcate those values of you know, family, customer service, do more with less, to your point, Ike, earlier. How do you personify that throughout your organization, given that the front line is three or four levels removed from the two of you? So you have to rely upon people to actually pick up and understand what they need to do and the values by which you run the business. How do you, how do you make sure you have that honed to an art and reinforce that continually? 
Well, Lee, you, you probably want to talk about your Oasis chats at some level, but I can just say for me, and I, and I don't um, impact the company's culture quite the way Leon does. Um, I, I kind of more work with a, a team of, of buyers and third-party suppliers, but I think it's honestly just leading by example um, and, you know, treating people, you know, being mentioned, as, as Leon mentioned earlier, um, uh, you know, also not always having to be the smartest person in the room, right? Like we learn, we like to say that we, we're constantly learning that we know very little in fact. The more you know in our business and retail, the more you think you know, the more of a problem it is because you have to be super flexible. And I think, um, you know, we learn from everybody around us. We learn from our employees. And I think that is contagious and that trickles down. Um, so um, in that respect, I think, people kind of see and look at us and look at our executive team and understand that we're all kind of like that. Um, but um, Leon has actually started something called Oasis Chaps, which really helped trickle it down to the 3,000 employees we have, because that's, that's the challenge. So maybe you can speak to that, Lee. Well, yeah, I, I think like how we keep it going when, when you grow so much having the right people in place is absolutely critical um, and empowering them. So there's a couple parts to that. First, how you hire people. So hiring, even at the, the lowest levels, um, we've had, in fact, our, our director of uh, HR, um, Meta's right-hand person, Dennis, Christina Diaz, was our receptionist. Um, our 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 head, you know, um, general merchandisers um, were, they were salespeople, you know, not everybody started from within the company, but um, they knew that there was opportunity to grow within the company, which is an incredible example for others, by the way. But sometimes we had to hire in. And when we hired in, we, um, lots of people would interview them. All, all the people that we trusted who already had the wins or values in them were part of the process. So, you know, it, it's, it's easy for one person to miss something, but if it's a whole group thing, we're, we all discuss it. We all have to agree on it. Um, and when they finally do get on the team, they're entrusted, they're empowered to do their thing. Um, and then what you find is that on the field, good people hire other good people. So it, 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 it becomes, you know, very scalable. You know, it's interesting. It just reminds me of a story that, um, you know, also just kind of being humble and open to feedback as, as leaders, right? And, um, and kind of checking your ego at the door. I uh, one time was doing a, a review, probably about 10, 15 years ago, of one of our, you know, general merchandise managers and, and this was before like 360 reviews were a thing. And, and I do this review and it's like a five page review and I'm reading it through. And, and, um, and she, you know, she looks at me and she goes, okay, great, thank you. Are, are you done? And I said, yes, I'm done. And she then proceeds to pull out a list from her pocket <laughs> and, and go through all the things that I need to do, right? And, and, and ways that I can improve as her manager. And, 
And that was like, you know, you're going to make a decision at that point, right? Uh, you know, that's an inflection point. Like, uh, you know, are you going to accept this? And, and is this how it's going to be? And then once you decide, yes, you know, this is what I want. Um, and then, and, and then I think that just it permeates, the, you know, the rest of the company. Well, I think that goes down to the upside down pyramid where you think when you're at the top, you have all these people reporting to you. But the reality is, is that, is that you are reporting to everybody. Uh, and I think, I think that's, that's pretty much how we both feel is that we're, we're caretakers of the organization and, uh, and we have to watch out for everybody. And um, it's, 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 it's a reversal of what the, the hierarchy that people usually think of. And why is that, uh, Leon? Like, because it, you, that's the other thing that I noticed about you guys. Um, you know, listen, I worked in very traditional companies, top down, you know, big pyramids, you manage the pyramids. Uh, the folks at the bottom of the pyramid always felt like you're at the bottom of the pyramid. As opposed to when you flip it, uh, leadership takes the very progressive view is my role is to help you and enable you to win. Because if I do that, you're going to see the issues. You're going to counsel. You're going to you're going to sell more effectively when you, I know you have my back. And you guys do that pretty naturally. Why is that? Because I don't I don't think that's common. I mean, people talk a lot about it, but they don't normally execute against that proposition. But you guys think, consistently do. Yeah, I think it comes with the knowledge that in our business, as really, if anyone really thinks about it in any business. It's very, it's usually the people that are lower down on the pyramid, or in our case, higher in the pyramid, that are in contact with our guests or our customers. We don't call them customers, we call them guests. And how do you get somebody on the front line to smile and to care if it's the other way around? If they're just feeling like they're a cog in the system, mm -hmm. there's no way it works. So, um, so you have to really glorify the, the people that are on the front line. Um, you have to make them feel like heroes, like winners, um, and you have to appreciate them. Um, and I think that, that that realization that you cannot, we have to have literally you know, hundreds and hundreds of people on the floor engaging and smiling genuinely. So they can't just, they can't fake it. Uh, they have to feel it. And that's you know, the only way it works. And, and, I, and I think just to piggyback on what Leon's saying is, I think um, understanding their challenges and their struggle is also really important and being able to relate to them. We, you know, I, I, um, and being essentially in the trenches with them, right? So we, forever always held a job function. We weren't just leaders, right? But I, I actually started at store level as a salesperson. And this was after law school and then moved my way up to an assistant manager of a single store and then managed a single store. So, so, and it was hard. I mean, you know, standing on your feet eight, 10 hours a day and customer service. And, you know, I was like, and I'm not even wearing heels, like, most of our employees were. And I was like, geez, how, how do you guys do this? So, so we did that with them. As a buyer, I, was, I had the same job function as our other buyers. And, and so you put yourself out there. 
you know, you're, you're in a vulnerable position because you're putting yourself out there to be judged and comparing your performance to their performance, right? But, but I think at the end of the day, they really respect that at the same time. When you're like in there with them, doing your best, taking risks, failing at times, you know, and, and uh, having to be supportive and, and being, be supported. So, um, yeah, you're part of it as opposed to being a separate from it or above it. Yes, um, correct. For sure. And you guys also, I want to come back to this concept of Oasis, both how you personify the business as well as the jump off point you use that as the kind of the fulcrum for communication into your organization. Tell us a little bit about, about the Oasis, where that concept came from, and how do you leverage it to create that culture that's so unique at Windsor? So we always knew culture was important um, and we had a good culture, but there's one thing knowing that and the other thing is really communicating it in, in a way that everyone understands. And you almost need a battle cry or literally a cheer, which is what it eventually became. But you know, as an executive team, we were kind of, we were redoing our mission statement and um, thinking about what would work. And somehow it came up in the meeting, somebody brought up, oh, well, what are we trying to do? We're trying to create an oasis, right? And somehow it resonated with everybody. And oasis in the mall, right? Because the mall was like this desert, this dying yeah. desert, right? Where, right. No, where retailers were struggling to differentiate themselves. So how, how do we stand out in that environment? Right. How does the customer feel when they see our store and walk in, you know, compared to how they do in the rest of the mall? So, and, well, you know, yeah, exactly. You know, it was it was an aspiration, which it has to be. And it has to be it has to be something that you have to aim really high and it has to excite everybody. And it has to be something that everybody could contribute to. So like, you know, whether it's on the back end, whether it's the IT department, whether it's the visual merchandising to make the store look beautiful, whether it's the construction teams building the store or the salesperson, um, everybody contributes to this idea of an oasis. And we liked it because it was one word. It was simple. And we started repeating it and applying it to everything. Um, to, to the point where it was like annoying. We were annoying ourselves and we're talking about it so much. That's when you know you're actually talking about it enough. Um, and, and it wasn't just our mission statement ended up being something that was, it was plastered everywhere, but it didn't just collect dust. It's something we actively talked about. And I, Ike was referring to the Oasis chats, you know, where we have chats every week. We talk about culture um, and we, we, we have, something called Google Currents, where we're constantly interacting. Almost every sale over $200, I personally am involved in congratulating that salesperson on Google Currents. And that takes a lot of time, not just from me, but some of the other key people where we're, we're just, and we're talking about, oh, well, thank you for creating the Oasis for our guest, or what a great job in doing creating a wardrobe for our customer or doing this or doing that or making her feel special. 
So it's very aspirational, it's emotional, it's something everyone can relate to. And we repeat it like crazy and we believe it. We, we drink the Kool-Aid and so everybody else does too. And you know, and we put it front and center. So anybody who's in retail knows that Monday morning is the craziest time in retail because it's when you get in and all the reports are printed out and you don't want to be bothered by a supplier, a vendor, by you, you just you need quiet time to process it all. At Windsor, we flipped it on its head and we said, guys, guess what? At Monday morning at 10 a.m., everybody stop. Everybody go into the distribution center, our entire corporate team, and there's going to be a half hour chat about culture. Oftentimes, nothing about the business. Oftentimes, it could be some inspirational story, something that happened at home, whatever it may be. And there's a chat led by initially, usually Leon. You know, Leon did nine out of 10 of these chats early on. And we would stream them to everybody in the company, right? Because how, how do you get down? How do you get it down to everybody in 38 states? And, and at the end of the chat, there would be a cheer. Um, and, and then people would comment on the chat. Yeah. And, and, and it was fascinating. And then that evolved to, all right, we've heard Leon speak 50 out of 56 weeks. We're, we're ready for other people, right? And other executives started jumping in and saying, hey, I have, I have a thought. I have an inspiration. I have something I'd like to share. I have something that we can improve on, a 1% improvement that I did or that, or that someone else did right? Recognizing others was a massive part of these chats. It's not just about, you know, some learning, but it's about recognition in a big way. Because we find that that's almost more important than what someone gets paid or their title. It's, it's simply just being recognized. It's that pat on the back. And, um, and then we started saying, hey, how about some of these people that were recognizing at store level leading the chats? So now during COVID, this last year, we've had store managers, salespeople, stylists lead these chats. And it's like this incredible platform. These, some of these people are playing, being paid close to minimum wage. And yet they're taking a half hour and addressing the entire company. And it's really, really powerful. And, and talk about got flipping that pyramid. That's like part of another way is to flip that pyramid. So yeah. it really snowballs. Yeah. And I think it's so cool. And obviously this has been my field for 40 years and I can tell you the number of companies that get it, <laughs> what you guys are expressing and have done. That's why it's so much fun to work with you too. Um, I was gonna ask you when you're bringing people into the company and you're trying to protect, nurture, and continue to develop your culture, what are the things you're looking at that tell you whether or not they're gonna be a good fit? Because I remember when I started doing searches with you guys, one of the things you impressed upon me is they might have the technical skill, Dennis, but they gotta be able to fit. They gotta be able to fit what we do and how we do it as a, as a culture that underpins our success. How do you guys test for that? You know, it's funny. I actually just had a thought to myself of something my dad used to do. 
and, and we don't do this uh, anymore, but it's kind of emblematic of the philosophy. Um, during an interview, he would ask the interviewee, could do you mind uh, bringing that chair over here so you know we can talk more closely, whatever it is, he would give them an assignment and he would watch the way they walked back and forth to get that chair. Um, and that was actually something that was really important to him. And, and there was something about figuring out the, what makes this person tick? What is their sense of urgency? What is, you know, because you can't, you cannot possibly train person with their, a person with their character, right? That comes from their parents, that comes from something else. Um, and you, you know, I, I remember like the, the most important questions in an interview ended up being, what do you do for fun? What are your hobbies? And just uh, observing the passion within that person and getting a sense for a connection. And we weren't always right about it, but, but we were all looking for the same kind of um, spark in that person, that Windsor spark. That is it, and it's not. It's not a purely. Um, into it's not an intellectual thing. It's not something that's academic. It's something you have to feel. It's interesting. Just pr pretty early on, on, on a lot of our interview processes, um, even with what you would call a more entry level position, you know, about five minutes in, we'll generally switch gears from the business and tell and say, hey, tell us about your family, you know, and, and oftentimes they're taken back, you know, tell us about your brothers, tell us about your sisters, tell us about your parents, you know, um, and, and just kind of understanding those connections and the importance of family to these people or, or uh, it, you get, you get under that layer that initial kind of layer of, you know, really quickly and you see what's kind of inside. Um, and it's very, usually very telltale, you know, um, and, and those people um, who can explain a story and they get pretty deep pretty quickly. You know, you'll be surprised what comes out when you ask somebody about their family. Um, we've had people in tears um, five minutes into meeting them in an interview. Um, you know, and that could be a good or a bad thing, but but sometimes, you know, usually it's actually a really good thing um, to talk about that that connecting to that passion. Um, yeah. And but we have gotten it wrong more than once. I will say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, uh, I don't think there's a perfect batting average that anyone has. Yeah. But you know, they were humans, and we're all, all come different shapes and sizes and different mm -hmm. things and. Sometimes the package is different after you unwrap it than what you're actually getting. But uh, right. you, guys are, you guys are normally on the point though, that would be my view. I wanted to ask you um, about COVID for a moment and the impact it's had on your business. Not so much the business in terms of, you guys are a lot in malls and states have shut down and it really hurt your business. But what did you learn about yourself along the way during this crisis and about each other and your organization? What was surprised you and what was reinforcing? Because, you know, in my view, this is where the test of leadership really gets made. 
is navigating through these kind of stormy, uh, stormy seas, like the old adage, you know, uh, good sailors aren't made from calm seas. Um, so the, there's got to be some really good, profound learnings you've had and some surprises along the way. What would you say about that? I think that's a great question. Uh, usually great questions are once they're great because you've, you have a good answer. And I think that um, I feel pretty good about this answer. We really discovered how resilient we were. And, you know, we had had, we had created this executive team and it, it you know, that particular team had not yet been battle tested. And it was a combination of you know, senior leaders that had been with us for decades and newer people that we had hired with the help of some capital and our private equity partner. Um, and so it was unknown if we had really brought together the right people, whether the chemistry was right, because really in that situation, one weak link could, could really be very damaging. And it was a team of 10 of us. And, Stores were, you know, closed. We, for the beginning, we closed our e-commerce. And here we were on a Zoom call, you know, and we had not done Zoom before. We weren't that type of culture. We were like walking into each other's offices and this, so it was completely unknown. How were we going to react to this situation? And I have to say the way we came together to just, we didn't, get depressed, we didn't wallow in fear, we tackled problems one thing at a time. At, at, you know, and, and, we, and that was the only way you can deal with it because certain, during the pandemic, um, it, it's a very crazy type environment we were all in, but it was fluid, it was dynamic, um, we had to be scrappy. And I have to say it was really remarkable how every, Every person, even today we had a call, I was looking around that, first of all, we had all the right roles represented in that team to handle these problems. Um, and everyone stepped up. There were no weak links. Um, and it was absolutely critical to, get, to getting through. Um, and it, it feels like we, there's a lot of light at the end of the tunnel now. We feel very encouraged and it would not have been without this team and without, and, and I think we have tremendous confidence now. Like this has, we, we, um, we really believe in ourselves now more than ever because of what we went through. Mike, what about you? You know, I, I think one of the big takeaways, again, kind of goes back to culture, um, is that the goodwill you create um, with your employees, um, and, and more interestingly, with your third party key vendors, um, which I never really considered all that much. Um, our, our suppliers who supply our clothing to us, you know, we've always considered partners, but when you close every single store across the chain on March 17th, and you have tens of millions of dollars of goods that are supposed to be shipped to you, and you've got to tell these third-party suppliers that some of which are mom and pop businesses. I'm, I'm sorry, I can't fulfill this purchase order, or you know, or I can't follow through on it, and everything has to stop. 
and you can't even really pay them. Um, I didn't know what to expect. And it was, um, it was pretty remarkable. There wasn't a single supplier of well over a hundred that caused any kind of problem. And in fact, they were apologizing to us. We feel so badly that this happened. We are sorry for you. We completely understand. How can we help you? That to me was shocking. That to me was like, okay, this is years and years and years of goodwill and good culture and good partnership that was coming together probably the most important time. That bond never broke. Um, and, and so, you know, you learn a lot about your partners at that time. And, um, and coming out of it, you're just that much more grateful. And, and so, and, yeah. of course, by the way, I'm sorry, Dan. If I could just ask, Leanna, like, just to mention lies, um, again, I, I saw you guys in February. The business was booming. I mean, it really was. It, it couldn't be better. And then March 17th, you're pulling the plug on the whole operations given the COVID just dimensionalize what that was uh, from a business standpoint for the for the listeners who may not be that familiar with Windsor. Yeah, actually, it's, it's a good context that I think is important that, you know, some people are, everyone's been affected differently by the pandemic. Some businesses have been devastated. Uh, we were one of the businesses that were going to be devastated, just, just like the travel industry or hotels or airplanes, whatever. Our business was all about um, we sell special occasion dresses, and we we also spell you sell you know merchandise to for events that happen during the year. Now, all these events are canceled, right? Social distancing is directly against the idea of bringing people together into social gatherings and selling social dresses. So this attacked the very core of our business model. And we knew it was going to be devastating. I mean, forget the fact that the stores are going to be closed for a few months, but there are no events, right? Everyone is staying away from each other. They, they're staying in their rooms, Zooming, right? So this was, and wearing sweatpants. This was a disaster for our business, just to put it in perspective, right? So, and so we, we had to ask our employees to take pay cuts, our, our, our vendors, our landlords. Um, it was it was a drawn out negotiation with all these different parties. Everybody had to play well in the sandbox. Our banks. I mean, just just as a frame of reference, revenue went from twenty five million dollars in a month, twenty to twenty five million dollars in a month, to five hundred thousand dollars the next month and the next month. So um, pretty drastic. I mean, the business stopped. Right. And, and, and it was just, if it was just those three months, it would have been, okay, we maybe could have figured that out, but it was, this was prolonged and we, we didn't know when it was going to end. And, um, and it, and in the end, um, now that we see the business coming back and everything that we did, you know, everyone believing in us even more, um, including our, our landlords, our banking partners, and, and most importantly, our our private equity partner, um, Mark Leader, the head of Sun Capital, comes to us a few weeks ago. I'm not sure if you know about this, Dennis, but he tells us, you know, 
we we would like you to open hundreds of stores uh, as soon as possible. And this year, in the next 12 months, we're hoping to open 100 stores um, and expand our chain dramatically. So the, the irony is, this is off your. The screen. irony is, it took us a hundred. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, this the, the irony is, it took us forty years to open the first hundred stores. Then, over five years with Sun Capital, we opened another hundred. Now, immediately after the pandemic, in the next twelve months, we're opening another hundred. So, um, getting through this, you're a witch just getting through this, and the opportunity, right? But, but none of this would be available without culture and partners and great support. So both of you- use, you have to create that. Yeah, I want to explore this, this, uh, this concept of resilience just for a minute, because both of you are, are talking about that, the resilience of the organization. How do you, you know, for others that are going through the same firestorm, how do you create a resilient organization? The reason I ask it is, I remember we dropped uh, into your company like we did many others a pulse survey, just to kind of read the pulse of the organization during the depth of the pandemic. And your results were unbelievably good. I mean, I don't mean that unbelievable in terms I didn't believe it, it's just they were stellar, which said there was a lot of uh, good spade work in terms of helping people understand what the situation was, why you're taking the action you're taking, a pretty steady rhythm of communication to keep people informed. and. People were excited about, hey, when, we're, when we come back, we're coming back stronger. That sense of uh, resilience and confidence, a lot of companies can't lay claim to that. So how did you, how did you do that? How did you navigate? How did you manage that uh, during this really tough business situation? Unprecedented. Yeah, it, it was unprecedented, right? That's the word we heard all the time. It, it was very tricky. Uh, an HR department did an amazing job of, uh, of, of staying in touch with everybody. And it was tricky. And um, so we weren't, we couldn't do the Oasis chats anymore. So what were we gonna do, right? So we started, um, we found ways um, to do recordings. Like I, I did some audio recordings that we delivered via the, our payroll system. So it was the only way that we could actually talk to people who were no longer on the payroll, right? That, but they did, they would periodically check for updates. And when they check for updates, we ping them, there's another update. And it'd be a little speech from me, usually saying, you know, we don't know what's going on. Hang in there, we're doing our best. We're, you know, uh, I, I usually didn't have good news to deliver, but we were honest about what was going on. And, and we were appealing to everybody to, to be patient and to believe in the process. And, and I think that because at Windsor, the primary people work at Windsor is not because of the pay, it's because of the experience and because of the connection, that's what allows for resilience mm. because that's why they're gonna come back because it means something more than a paycheck to them. Ike, you wanna add on that? That's great, Leon. Ike, you wanna add on that? No, thank you. Where do you go from that? Yeah, I know it's hard to stop, but it's right, right? It's right in the mark. Hey, let me ask you, uh, we talked a little about what was going on inside the company. When you think about your business uh, externally with the guest, the consumer, the shopper, however you describe it, how has that, how has COVID changed 
uh, and I don't know if it's fundamental, but it certainly changed the landscape in terms of retail and how people shop the particular mm -hmm. category. What do you mm -hmm. visualize in terms of what the new normal might be in a business like yours? Well, one thing that it has changed is because, you know, the customer is not as event driven. Um, it's more about, especially now about wardrobing, you know, so we, we actually have our, our stylists when they're engaging the customer, it, the question used to be, what, what, what event are you shopping for? Uh, now, now it's more like it, it's, it's a, more, it's a broader uh, approach to selling, um, which has actually strengthened us because we couldn't sell so many special occasion dresses. So we had to compensate by selling more tops and bottoms and casual dresses and accessories. So that was a whole different approach to selling. And, um, and I hope that our guest now knows us for not just the, the fancy dress that we do a lot more. Um, so we, we maybe develop some new capacities and skills. Mm -hmm. Exciting. How do you, uh, just a corollary of that, I'm just curious, how do, you, how do you keep in touch with and spot where the consumer or guest heads are? You know, classically you would have might've, might've done that in a more traditional way, but in a more physical proximity ways, but given we're socially distanced, how do you keep how do you keep abreast of the trends, what people are interested in, what their buying habits might be, and how they might change? How are your stylists kind of navigating that? You know, we we rely on you're right, we did rely on a lot of store feedback um, from what customers would say, but when the stores were closed, it was really we had to rely on e-commerce, what what search words were trending what were the top five search words that week that day what color were they looking for and so we were relying on kind of our our marketing team to relay that information to us um and and then also really just social media like really watching what was happening on instagram and what people were featuring and um, couldn't use our customer that much, but we could use, we could still identify who our target customer was and what they were seeing on social media and, and online. And that really kind of helped dictate the direction we would go in terms of the fashion direction. Mm -hmm. And guys, I, I'm mindful of your time, but <clears throat> I had a couple questions more if I could. Um, sure. When you think about your business now going forward, you were going to come out of this. I got my... I got my two jabs so I can travel again. So I'm out and the world is slowly opening up. Well, all I got to tell you was on a flight <clears throat> last week for the first time in two, three months. And I was excited about it. But after spending three hours in the tarmac with no information about the delay, it was like, yeah, I really haven't missed this that much <laughs> along the way. <laughs> but I was wondering, as you guys think about two to three, three to five years out, how do you see, um, how do you see Windsor as a business out out that in that time frame, obviously we're going to add a whole bunch of stores onto the onto the chassis, if you will. But what are what are the things are you hoping that your business will be able to do, both business wise and organizationally and culturally? Hmm. Well, of course, the Oasis is front and center, right? As we scale, 
we have to continue to be creative to find ways to communicate the oasis and make sure it's getting to everybody. Uh, and I and I think at this point we're we're sort of the last man standing, right? So, uh, but if you but new people will emerge, new competitors will come up. So we have to always be doing, be hungry, be doing things well, be improving constantly. One of our values is need to improve all the time. Um, and we've improved through the pandemic and there's been a lot of lessons learned and we need to take that into the future and continue learning. Mike, what about you? It's a little frozen. Yeah, yeah, interesting because Anytime we cut, oh, am I frozen? Thanks. Yeah, you're okay now. How about now? It says I'm an unstable. <clears throat> yep, thank you. Uh, we won't even, so, um, we won't even, we, won't even go we, there. We won't even go there. We're just going to let that one pass around. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, time we come out, whether it's a recession, you know, in 2009 or pandemic that we're coming out of still, we we scale back, right? We scale back payroll. We do only what's necessary, right? And and during the good years, you add a lot of kind of unnecessary fat on, right? And and you don't even realize you're adding all these layers of fat. But during the pandemic, even though um, you know sales were terrible, we actually improved EBITDA significantly on our e-commerce uh, form. And, and, um, and, so, and we did so by just watching expenses and how we do things. So going forward, I think some of the things learned, if we can hold on to those as we layer on revenue, we're even going to be a much stronger business than we were before. Um, so I, I look forward to... Um, you know, keeping those learnings as best we can, knowing that we can still do more with less and basically bring that stuff to the bottom line. Um, so, yeah. A last question for you too. Um, again, less of the experience question, but for young people that are considering a career in retail, what advice would you have for them? I, well, first of all, Retail is a, an amazing opportunity, but it's important you understand what retail is all about. Uh, it's really good for people that like to be doing different things all the time and people that like to be connected to other people. It, it's definitely a people business, um, but it's also a business of systems. Um, where there, there are lots of systems that have to work and be in place for it to work. It's, it's fairly complex, even though it seems simple, but in the end to deliver the product and to make it look good and to have all the, this tremendous IT involved um, and omni-channel and marketing, it involves everything, right? So it's, it's a great opportunity to learn so many different trades. Um, so that that's number one. That I, it, if if you like that type of of, of stimulation of challenge, you're going to be challenged. And the other thing is that 
there's a lot of fluctuations, lots of ups and downs. So, you, you know, you have to be able to learn how to handle that. You're, you know, you're going you're, you're gonna to be stressed and you're going to, but you have to learn how to be calm and focused. Uh, and in the end, you have to learn how to empower people because you can't do it by yourself. And it's a, it's a lot of work, a lot of systems and a lot of empowerment. Ike, what about you? You know, I, I would just say um, when it comes to retail, you just have to kind of jump in, you know, with, with two feet. Um, I used to um, lecture at the Fashion Institute of Design and Merchandising, and, and I would see these, you know, um, these students, very thoughtful, very smart, but when it came to actually working at Windsor and applying themselves, you know, it's, it's a different beast when you're actually really doing it. And so, um, and, and I would say, if, if you think you want to have a career in retail, try it, all right? Try it before you, you say, hey, I'm gonna commit to four years of school and X and Y and Z. Um, get your feet wet, learn about it. Um, you know, and, and there really are no shortcuts, right? You, you have to be patient with the process. So as long as you, you know, you have, a, a, you have an understanding of what it is that you want to get involved with and you're patient, right? You've got the long, long vision ahead. I, I think you'll be okay. And I think you'll be great. You'll love it. I mean, it, it is, it is fun. And if you like adrenaline, if you like to kind of Oh, you know, like Leon said, oh, is something new. And it's the ultimate horse race, right? You're every day, there's a winner, there's a loser, you did well. You, you get immediate kind of um, gratification oftentimes, you know? Um, it, it's a great business. Um, it's exciting. So and I have to ask this bonus question because I'm watching you two on the screen here. What's it like to work with each other? You know, again, rare that we see brothers working together as long as you two have what, and maybe you know, I'll trim this out of the interview later, <laughs> depending on what I hear. But you know, what's it like working in the same business together as uh, as brothers? I love this question in, in part because, like Leon said, I think there's a good answer. Um, you know, I've been asked before, how often do you guys fight? You guys must fight all the time, and the people don't believe us when we say rarely ever. And, um, and this is despite the first 20 years, we've been at it for about 27 years now together. The first 20 years or so, we shared a tiny office, you know, a 15 foot by 15 foot office. We had a big building, but we had two desks and one office. Um, and it's been, it's been wonderful. Um, it did take a little while to get there, to understand how to work together. Um, but um, to Leon's credit, I think this, you know, sharing the same office, he always wanted to make sure that I knew everything that was going on in his world, right? And, and vice versa, I would share everything with him. Um, so we, you know, we were kind of cross training each other in, in, in that sense. Um, and at the same time, I understood that I, you know, I didn't want, there needs to be a leader at some point. There needs to be a single leader. And I was okay with Leon kind of taking that role. 
Um, and, and I was okay because I realized how good he was at it. So, um, and, and, and so uh, I, I guess my point is really understanding each other's strengths and roles. And I felt like Leon gave me that same kind of respect when it came to merchandising the stories. And um, he, he gave me a ton, all the leash I wanted. Um, and so uh, I think that mutual respect and kind of trusting that each other, that the other person knows what they're doing while at the same time knowing your place in the business, right? Um, and so that, that for me is, is, is key. That's cool. That's a great way of describing it, Ike. I mean, first of all, we, we love each other, right? So that it starts at that, that's the foundation, right? So um, we shared a bedroom when we were kids and we shared a, an office as, as adults. Um, but beyond that, it, you know, how do you maintain that? And it's, um, I think I expressed it perfectly, but it was a lot of communication and that we enjoy talking, we enjoy talking shop, you know, talking about what was going on. And, and you know, we, we bounced ideas off of each other constantly and we got each other's insights. And I think we also deviated from the traditional model of like how family members sort of divide divide up and uh, conquer, we, we unified. We, we had a lot of overlap and we were, you know, Ike was in a lot of real estate meetings. I was in a lot of merchandising meetings. Um, and to the point where we fully understood what, what the other person was involved in. Um, so it was sort of like the, the DNA, you know, like every, every DNA molecule knows that exactly all the other functions. It was, we, we were connected that deeply. Um, so, and it, just like any, any marriage partnership, it's communication. Mm-hmm. You know, to the point of, I, you know, I'd be lying if I didn't, you know, entire, you know, three o'clock in the afternoon, four meetings going on, Leon would say, I come sit down on the couch. I want to download for a half an hour. Just listen to me on what, what my day was like. And I, you know, there were some eye rolls, like really, but at really it's that half an hour, that connection that, that makes it all work. Yeah. Good on you too. I mean, listen, you're, you guys are just uh, two, uh, two great leaders and listen, this has been a great fast hour. I thought it would be because you guys are just so uh, on top of your game. Uh, but you, all the success that you have and the one and the success you have in the future is richly deserved. I couldn't think of two better people um, to interview today and also to, to watch what you're doing with the business, what you've done and what you'll do with the business. It's just been nothing short of phenomenal. So I appreciate your time. Uh, and Dennis, it's been good fun. You've been a great guide for us as well. And uh, you know, there are very few people who can come in as a, a consultant and understand the business as quickly as you did and have and, and guide us uh, as we were building our executive team. Um, you know, a lot of credit goes to you and we thank you for that. So. I appreciate that. And keep your office door locked, Ike, because when I come out in Los Angeles, <laughs> if I lose weight, I'm going to steal your wardrobe. I keep telling you. <laughs> yeah, it sounds good. All right. Sounds good for you. Guys, thanks a lot. Really thank good. You. Good seeing both of you. You look great. You look healthy. You look hale and you look 
primed for uh, future success. I wish you all of it, truly. Thank you so much, Dennis. Same to okay. you. Thank you for having Bye -bye. us.